0: Welcome to the Exploring Leadership Podcast, where we interview experienced HR leaders and executives to define what the most effective leaders are made of and how to help underperforming leaders transform into the best they can be. Brought to you by Lumen Leadership. Now, here's your host, Spencer Taylor.
1: Welcome, welcome. Today, my guest is Claire Chandler, who's the president and founder of Talent Boost. Excited for her to share with you a bit of what she does at Talent Boost and the incredible work she's doing with her clients, and the amazing amount of content and tools that she has generated for her clients. Uh, some years ago I came across a book called What the CEO Wants You to Know. And so this interview is kind of the inverse of that. It's it's what the organizational leadership development consultants want the C-suite to know. It's kind of the idea behind the interview. And Claire just drops so many one-liners that are powerful, principles that can be transformational. I really feel that if you, if you really are focusing on what she's saying, the, the implied action items and the explicit action items that she shares at the end, that you and your organization will be tremendously better for it. So let's jump into it. So excited for you to hear from Claire. I am so grateful. Really, I am uh, that you're taking this time today. I know you're busy. You do a lot of podcasts. You create a ton of content. You're like this machine of brand and content generation, it seems like to me. So just thrilled that we get to create a little bit of content together today. So welcome, Claire.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. It's great to be here.
1: And we want to hear about you a little bit first. Um, Love to kind of hear Top three things people should know about you. It doesn't have to be three, but, you know, just kind of the, the headliners of, of uh, who Claire Chandler is and what made you into the brilliant person you are today.
0: Ooh, so top three headlines. OK, well, first of all, I am a Jersey girl born and raised, uh, which people are going to doubt because I don't have that typical or stereotypical accent. But but here we are. Uh, so that's number one. Um, I consider myself a corporate survivor. So spent uh, close to 20 years in corporate America. Um, before I went out on my own. And uh, since I did that 10 years ago and founded my company officially in 2013, I have been uh, just loving what I do and, and specializing in helping leaders and the companies that they serve get to the next level.
1: Awesome. Okay. Well, so a couple of nuggets I got or uh, threads I got to pull on here. Uh, tell me more about the Jersey thing, because everybody I've met from New Jersey doesn't talk like you.
0: You know, you know, it's so funny. Um, if you, if you've ever seen John Travolta, the actor in any of the movies he's done, typically he's very, so he's from New Jersey and he's okay. very stereotypical in the characters that he plays, whether it's Vinnie Barbarino on the, you know, welcome back Cotter or, uh, you know, one of the sweat hogs in the movie Grease, He always has a very uh, distinct accent. And I was watching a uh, an interview, uh, of him several years ago. And he said his mother was so disappointed in him when he became, you know, big as an actor because she had worked very hard to make sure he did not have a stereotypical Jersey accent. And then he went and took all these roles where he like over, you know, overplayed that, uh, that sort of, you know, Dramatic accent. So um, I don't have a similar excuse. I've never done any sort of acting, but I am the daughter of a school teacher. Uh, So my mom's a school teacher, retired now. My dad is a is a small business owner, also retired. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, you know, prided myself on on not having that sort of stereotypical caricature accent that that a lot of people assign to New Jersey and, and actually very few of us have so it's interesting
1: well and I love I, I love your phrase corporate survivor too I'd love to learn more about why you choose that wording uh, like why did you? Leave, I guess, and, and like yeah. what what uh, what led to that whole uh, survivorship, I guess, as the descriptor, and and what you're doing in contrast <laughs> with what you're doing now.
0: Yeah, so you know, corporate gets a bad rap, right? Just just like Jersey, kind of gets a gets a bad rap. And I, you know, I I swore I was never going to work in corporate America. Um, like I said, I'm the product of a school teacher and a small business owner, and just you know that whole buttoned up suit and tie. Um, you know, 40 to 80 hour work week, Monday through Friday was just not in my DNA um, or so I thought, of course. And, you know, I graduated college and that's where the opportunities were. So I, you know, I worked in all sorts of different jobs. I started out as a uh, as a report editor for an environmental services company. Um, you know that's specialized in multi-volume environmental impact statements, so total page turners, right? Um, but that was my that was my job was editing them and and sort of putting those together. Um, and then fast forward to I worked for a global um, water and wastewater uh, environment and, and energy company, and uh, you know really kind of got into my groove, so to speak. I probably had I don't know five different career changes within that same company. Started out in communications, uh, did a lot around marketing and branding, uh, took a turn in customer relations and learned so much about how the company ticked based on the customers that we were serving. And then um, the last several years I was in the company, I spent in human resources. So I started out as the trainer, um, you know, built out an employee development discipline, Um, you know, that morphed into all things talent management. So the entire career life cycle for the company, um, I had the great opportunity of of leading and designing and, you know, and advancing. Um, And then in 2011, it was my last, my last year there, as it turned out, um, I was in a role where I was the vice president of HR for a pretty large division of our company. I was traveling all the time and I had this really amazing team and I got to see, all sorts of, you know, areas of the country and and kind of meet people where they were, uh, which was a great experience. But while I was on one of my trips, uh, I experienced a little bit of a, of a health scare. And so, you know, went to one doctor, which led to a specialist, which led to tests. And long story short, I was diagnosed with cancer.
1: Hmm. Wow. So
0: now, yeah. So like that was a big wake up call, right? Because it kind of forced me to go from 150 miles an hour, to zero, like I literally had to take a month off of work. I had to delegate everything. I didn't even look at email for three weeks, which was so unheard of for me. Um, and you know, I, I mean, fast forward to now, I'm I'm totally cancer free. Like, you know, that's not how this story ends. Thank God, right? Thank you. Um, but you know, it really when I when I took that time off and I spent some time in the silence, I finally could not outrun that question that was in the back of my mind, which was, are you doing what you're passionate about? And I finally had to admit that the answer was no, not because I didn't love the company I was in and the people that I worked with and the team that I led, but it just wasn't where my heart was in terms of doing this sort of full cycle HR. And so, you know, the funny thing about getting a cancer diagnosis is it really, makes all of your priorities sort of click into focus. Right. And so I knew if that wasn't where I wanted to spend my, my life, I needed to go find something else. And so that's what led me to, to leave corporate. I had a, you know, a really successful career there. I learned so much. I still keep in close contact with so many people, um, you know, that I, that I spent time with. Um, But it was, for me, it was just, that was the wake up call that my heart and soul needed, so to speak. kind of go out and and forge my own path.
1: Wow. What what an incredible story again. So grateful that you're cancer free now and great to celebrate that with you. And, uh, it's thankful for the way you describe things. So, um, I love your phrase, something I wrote it down as close as I could, uh, without taking my focus off of what you were saying, uh, something like taking time out with the silence, like taking time to just be quiet and, and think, Um, I think that there's, there's certain power in that. This is not necessarily what we're going to focus on for the episode, but we, we probably could though, like just how important that is uh, to, to step back. Uh, I remember reading a case study a few years ago of um, a, a president of a construction company that was kind of okay. Like they were a regional firm and they had some success, but he really wanted to grow more and just could never grow. And so he basically retired and turned the company over to the team and went fishing. And while he was fishing, he had these ideas and these insights and things that he thought they should do different. He would just kind of send the ideas to the office and they would do them. And this company just started to blow up. So I I guess the common principle is that sometimes it seems counterintuitive, but the answer is to stop the noise and to allow yourself the space, whether that's individually as in your case or organizationally uh, to take time to be quiet.
0: Uh, you know I love how you express that and that's a great it's a great story that you just shared and it is 100% the way to lead a successful business and the way to have a fulfilling life is to embrace and and create moments of silence right um I talk to so many leaders through my through my work um you know and and we always come up against this obstacle because they they always say you know and I deal a lot with the, with the C suite and I know we're going to dive into that a little bit um, but, you know, the C-suite leaders especially are guilty of this. They are guilty of, of, of feeling guilty, quite honestly, if their schedule is not jam-packed, right? With yep. one meeting after another from the boardroom to, you know, walking around the operation or the office or whatever. Um, and there's a reason that mindfulness and meditation and all of these things have become such big trends if you look at some of the most successful, famous leaders, they all point to meditation or mindfulness specifically, as a core principle of of kind of what what has led them to their success, right. Um, And it doesn't mean that you have to start the morning in a in a yoga pose, and chant and do all those things. If that works for you, great. I tried yoga. I kept falling asleep. It worked that well because it like it, it silenced <laughs> the noise, right? Um, but you know the, the, the great thing about starting your day and injecting points throughout your day and your week and your life with pockets of silence where, as you just said, you can quiet the noise and you can get some perspective.'re they They're priceless. If you're just going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And any leader who's listening to this knows you get nothing done, right? You leave that day so drained and, and feeling so unproductive because you you didn't actually get anything done, did a lot of talking, you did a lot of meeting, but did you actually drive your business forward? So I love that analogy of, of you know, the guy who said, I'm not getting this company to where it needs to be. I'm going to just, you know, put it in good hands and leave and go fishing. Well, man, how interesting that that's where the answers were because he allowed that silence and he thought it was an all or nothing proposition. And what he found was he could lead his business more effectively by leaving it behind and giving himself the space to think and to create and to really build a successful business. So I love that story.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And I love your elaboration on it too. So so well said. So at the risk of, I don't want to take the air out of the balloon because I think this is (laughs) such good energy already, but I want to go back to one other thing. Yeah. Uh, with your transition, your your escape from you know the corporate survivorship, um, because it's not at least in my experience and and the people that I've talked with, it's not just leave corporate America. Land a bunch of dream clients and do the work you love. Like that's not the sequence. Like there's this big like death valley in between, right? Of, at least maybe you're maybe you're a unicorn and that'd be wonderful. No, nope,
0: no, nope, no unicorn here.
1: <laughs> but tell me a little bit about that, like, because I yeah. have a friend, for example, and I think this is still relevant for our C-suite uh, conversation. Uh, he's transitioning out of his role as the top executive and looking to kind of make a change with what he's been doing for a decade. Um, and he, he wants to do something on his own, I think, but there's this, all these very, all these things that we're going to dig into a little bit, I guess This fear and doubt and how do you do it? And what's the bridge between where I am and where I want to be. And so anyway, maybe just give us a micro view of what that was like for you and how did you bridge it, bridge the gap?
0: Oh, man, you know, fear is such a big factor. So I want to make sure we, we come back to that, especially with the with with leaders in the C-suite, right? Because it's a big myth that that C-suite leaders just have it all figured out and they just dare greatly and they never have self-doubt. Um, total, total myth. So let's pop that balloon first. First and foremost. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'd love to sit here and tell you that, you know, I I got cancer. I took time off. I had this epiphany. I came back. I gave notice and I was you know an immediate overnight success as a consultant. Um, But that's in fact, not what happened. And that is the unicorn, right? That, that overnight um, success. What I had learned from that whole experience, and from coming back from medical leave, and having some really honest conversations with, um, with the C-suite of the company, because, you know, they were, they were so glad I was back, and I was on the road to, to a full recovery. But then they were so shocked that I would take this this track that i was on this executive track and this great career and just kind of leave it behind into the great unknown right because i didn't have a plan i didn't have a roster of clients just you know waiting for me to to hang my shingle and open my door as a consultant um i didn't even have a focus at that point you know that 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 day one it's so funny so i so my last day of corporate corporate life was a friday of course and you know the following monday Um, I got up early and I'm not a morning person. So this was like a big thing for me that I got up without an alarm clock and I'm smiling and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it was all great. And I, you know, I, I, I went into my kitchen and I brewed a nice big pot of coffee and I sat in a comfy chair in my new home office and I fired up my brand new laptop that I treated myself to. And I thought, okay, day one as a consultant, what the heck do I do? Right. Um, because it's so different, right when you're when you're a salaried executive, um, you know one, you've crammed your your day with so many different things, the priorities are kind of set for you. When you leave that behind and you decide you're going to go into business for yourself, unless it's like you're you're gonna sell physical products and you already have the inventory already established, when the value proposition is between your ears, it is often very hard to to make that transition overnight. So for me, it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of outreach that didn't go anywhere, and then the dominoes started to fall because I started to reconnect with people that I had known in my corporate life, and found that that was the springboard to, you know, to, to my very successful, thankfully fulfilling, you know, fulfilling and successful consulting practice because it was people who already knew me who you know we had this mutual respect and love and and said wow you're you know you're out on your own now i think i've you know i've got something that i i need to pull you in on and one thing led to another and that sort of snowballed um and you know there's there's so much that i would have done more effectively in hindsight um and you know it but it has served me well because i've been able to coach and counsel people who are on that same brink that I was 10 years ago and help them get to that focus and get dialed in on, you know, really what their value proposition is a lot faster and in a way that sort of unlocks their genius um, much, much more easily than than the experience was for me.
1: I especially love just your, your pay it forward mindset. Like you're just looking to to help make the journey a little simpler and easier. Now, so is, is that really sometimes we get the question, who do you love to serve? Is that kind of who you love to serve? Is that your main, uh, I guess, your dream client, so to speak, is is that executive in transition or who is it?
0: Um, you know, executives in transition are not my, they're not my mainstay, but they are absolutely, you know, kind of a piece of, of the puzzle. Um, I, what has become my specialty. And I say that because, you know, when you first kind of go out on your own, there's this whole backpack that you take with you of all these different skills and things that you could do that you do well that you maybe like. And it really does take a while um, without the proper guide to narrow that funnel down to not just the the things you love to do, but the things that, you know, fuel you and give you positive energy and all these sorts of things that kind of get you in the zone. Um, So for me, the zone really is working with Um, Yes, leaders in transition, but specifically leaders that are in a new role, whether it's their first role or their 40th role as a leader, um, because there's such an opportunity to, you know, flatten their ramp to full productivity. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that really is what I what I specialize in. And yes, I've got the benefit now of hindsight of what would have flattened my ramp to. You know, to to that full focus on where I want to spend my time and what's the value I want to deliver to the clients that I serve. Um, so, you know, the the larger the organization, the the better for me, just because there's a bigger impact. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say more recently, my focus has been on the the smaller and growing companies, because you know, a a big company has. I think more tolerance for failure, right? For a misfit in a leadership role. The smaller the company, the bigger the ripple effect of a bad decision, yeah. right? And yeah. so I I embrace the opportunity. I lean into those opportunities to, you know, work alongside a leader or a leadership team to say, you don't have to stumble over the same landmines that people before you did or people in a different industry or at a different time. Let's, you know, let's accelerate your learning curve and let's accelerate your ramp to full productivity. Um, because that's, that's not just where the profit is. That's where the fulfillment is. So let's get you there faster.
1: Well, and I think there, I love how you put that uh, idea that just that the smaller, the company, the bigger, the impact of, of a misfit or, or a slow ramp, you know, a long yeah. ramp up period. Um, and I think there's even wisdom for the bigger companies out there uh, to, to think of themselves I guess to approach it organizationally as if there are a bunch of smaller companies that are hitched together. At least that's, that's kind of how I've, I've tried to approach it with, uh, with some bigger clients Just like the, the marketing division or department or whatever is its own entity. And can it be profitable in and to, uh, unto itself? Um, and the, you know, the operations group and whatever else, like let's, let's kind of fragment things out of bit So we don't have that dependency that actually becomes debilitating in a lot of ways and hurts profitability. I thinking, well, we're big enough that we can afford to leave that VP of whatever in place for two years while they try to figure it out.
0: I, you know, I love that observation because, you know, this is where the larger organizations can take those silos that have built up over time and make them work to their advantage, right? We we so often hear and we talk about um, that siloed mentality in big organizations and no organization plans to to evolve in that direction, but it happens to the best of them, Right. But what you're talking about kind of takes that silo and turns it into more of a franchise, right? And says, how do we make each of those silos by themselves more profitable, more productive, um, and, and more collaborative as a, as a bigger part of the whole, right? Um, so I love that observation. And, and I want to drill in on something you just said about the larger organization, because this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, and I know in preparing for this conversation, we were saying, you know, at some point we want to talk about, the the C-suite and what we wish they knew, because it's so hard to get their ear, right? Because those schedules are so jammed and they've got guards at the gate that won't let, you know, people like us access them, which they really need, right? And here's the here's my big pet peeve when it comes to large organizations. When they put a new leader into a into a role, even if they're promoting from within and they're saying, here's a rock star who's been such a great individual contributor or manager of a smaller division or what have you. And we put them into a new role. What does a large organization do? The C-suite literally, now when you hear me say this out loud, it's going to make zero sense, but this is what they do. They literally plan for a dip in financial performance for six months. Every single company does this. And if those of you in the audience are hearing this and say, that's not really true, I want you to reach out to me and I'm going to give you how how to do that later. I want you to prove me wrong. Because every company I've experienced and especially the bigger ones, they plan for the dip rather than plan for the dominance. And there's a, there's a simple way to do that. And I think the reason they do that is because there's, there's comfort in numbers, right? There's, there's security in saying, well, we just know this based on history. So we're just going to forecast this out for six months and not set our bar too high for this new person. Wouldn't you rather focus your energy and your investment in making sure you've matched the right leader with the right role and giving them the support they need so that that dip is, is flattened or, or all but eliminated. It drives me crazy as you could probably hear in my voice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely love that you're calling this out. And I love that soundbite. It's gold. Don't plan for the dip plan for the dominance. And I was just even thinking of a, I was thinking Michael Jordan. Uh, right. An amazing basketball player, obviously, of yesterday. He's been retired for a while. Um, <clears throat> but if he were to have come into the Chicago Bulls and they're like, you know what? For the next five years, we're just going to plan to, to lose. Uh, we're just going to plan to to not ever make it to the playoffs and and win a championship. You know, what, what would that have been like? Like, wouldn't make any – in five years, obviously, is an exaggeration. But even like, let's give him one season. Let's give him a season to kind of get his feet under him or whatever. Uh, it just – it's mind blowing to think that we allow that type of thing in the corporate world. Again, particularly with bigger organizations.
0: Right, right. And, you know, the sports analogy is so on target. And you you look at the NFL, for example. You know, back in the back in the day, back in the Michael Jordan era. I realize he's basketball, not football, but that time, NFL teams planned for succession, right? And when they picked a quarterback, as an example in the draft, they put that guy behind the starting quarterback. For a couple of years, and they groomed him according to the culture, according to the playbook, according to, you know, the 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 way that we do things here in this organization, right? And what do we do now? We go for the number one pick, the the absolute rock star from college, the Heisman Trophy winner, or at least the finalist, and we put them into the the starting role immediately, and we just assume that his success at the college level will directly transfer over to the pros. And how many flame outs have we seen and how many folks, you know, and how many others who, who either peaked too early or got injured and are, you know, are now either riding the bench or, are, you know, retired already. Um, And I think, you know, leaders, especially the C-suite can take a lesson from that. It's not, you know, uh, and I, and the, the one who's popping into my head right now is Johnny Manziel, right? Johnny football. He was a, he was a stud in college and was it the Browns who, who drafted him and, you know, put him into that role and didn't give him the proper support. Yes. He had the raw talent. Yes. He had a leadership mindset, but he didn't have the right structure around him not to make bad decisions on and off the field. And that, you know, that franchise has paid the price for that.
1: Yeah. Well, It's amazing. You're talking circles around me with football. (laughs) You're so much more in tune with what's been going on. But I love the example, though, again, uh, just that there's been this shift and kind of an unreasonable expectation at an organization level. Again, once in a while, maybe it pays off and maybe that's why teams are doing it. But I think the the principle is let's not do that on the corporate side. Let's not do that with people and just assume they're going to they're going to go and and just rock it because they were a great manager of something that they're going to be an excellent VP or president or eventually CEO or whatever that is. So let's, let's get down into the list a little bit more Then we've already started. I love the flow so far. I think we've already got a lot of, of good sound bites that I hope C-level leaders that are listening uh, will take to the bank and, and apply. What are we missing? Like what are, what are the other big headlines that you want to broadcast to that audience?
0: I mean, for, for me, I, I want to go back to the, to this concept of silence just for a second, because I think it's, it is uh, it's too easily dismissed. You know, we covered it earlier, but I think it's too easy for most of the C-suite to say, yeah, that's a pipe dream. It's really nice to, to think I can, you know, kind of hold off meetings until 10 AM. So I can go and hold a yoga pose for a while. Um, If that's what you got out of the earlier conversation, you completely missed the point. The most successful leaders intentionally inject silence and periods of reflection and periods of higher brain, uh, you know, mental processing than the rest of you. And let me, you know, let me just speak it that way. Right. Um, so that's one piece that I want people not to gloss over the other piece around leadership, you know, too often. So in addition to companies planning for the dip versus the dominance, um, I think too often the leaders at the top, Kind of focus on, on two things when they feel like they're not, you know, achieving the financial results they want. One, they just look at the financials from, from last quarter. Those are lagging indicators. They're not going to tell you how to move the needle. The other is they think that the, the root cause of their lack of growth, their lack of innovation, their lack of, you know, competitive edge market share, et cetera, is the people on the front lines. Well, we're just not hiring the right people. And that may be true, but really what you're not doing is hiring or deploying or supporting the right mindset and perhaps the right people at the very top. I constantly say the biggest impact on a company's culture is the behavior of its leaders. If you cannot embrace the accountability from the very, very top of an organization that everybody else is going to take their their cue from you, right? What is the performance that is expected Is it very clear? What's the mission we're after? Um, You know, what's the behavior that gets recognized and rewarded and advanced? You know, um, I'm sure like like me, you have come across leaders who have this this mantra of do as I say, not as I do. Watch what happens to those cultures, because those are the ones that are going to lose out to the to the market dominators out there. So I think for me, you know, the, the biggest thing is leaders from the top have to accept accountability that what they say what they do what they believe and how they communicate absolutely matters so if if there was one missing piece so far i think that's the big one
1: i've even thought of it as and these aren't your words so you can push back if you'd like just the simple concept that every failure is ultimately a leadership failure if something's out of order if if the turnover is high if productivity is low if whatever we missed our target There's no pointing to the, again, that front line. There's no, even external uh, coronavirus, you know, whatever global events have happened. Like every failure is a leadership failure. And ironically, every success is not a leadership success. (laughs) I think at least is the way I would put it. Of course, leadership has to drive the success and and help create it. But the success is the people uh, and the credit should go to the people. So it's kind of this like, dichotomy, I guess, of, of two seemingly opposing uh, realities or truths. Um, do you want to elaborate on that at all? I guess do you have any thoughts, uh, either contrary or supporting that idea.
0: I agree 100 percent. And, you know, to go back to the uh, the sports analogy, uh, just to kind of elaborate on what you just said, you know, the saying is that teams win and coaches lose. Right. Um, for that very same reason, I mean, a leader's responsibility is to put the right resources into the right roles and give them the right support. Right and the right clarity of mission. When you talk to an NFL team, every single team has the same mission at the end of the day: it's to win the Super Bowl and to do that as many years in a row or, or you know, over, over a long period of time as they possibly can. That mission is very clear. How they get there, who they need, how they marshal those resources, what are the right plays to run, what's the culture in the locker room, of course, is very unique. Right, every single team has its own. Um, unique DNA, unique fingerprint, and, you know, unique way of going about it. But it's the same with a with a, uh, with a company culture. So I, I love that concept that, you know, every failure is a leadership failure. I 100% agree. And I think every success has to be a team success, right? It can't be the leader going, well, if it weren't for me, you all, you know, completely would have botched that. And I think, you know, that's another missing, right? And that's another missing piece, though, is... Um, you know, that we don't as leaders learn from failure, because it's too painful. It's too embarrassing. I don't want to point fingers. I don't want fingers pointed at me. But failure is where the biggest lessons are and the biggest opportunities for growth. If all you ever do is, is win, right, you, you just win a whole bunch of games, so to speak, and you never stumble. You're never going to learn how to make yourselves better, stronger, build up, you know, muscle memory, all of those great things. And I think too many companies, um, you know, get to a get to a point or get to a pattern where they don't intentionally and with discipline review where they had missteps, review where they went after a competitive bid and didn't get it. Review when another top performing employee leaves the company. How many organizations do you know that actually do exit interviews? So there's a very small percentage. And of those, there's a very small percentage that actually does anything with that data, right? Um, the more you learn from your failure, the more you can minimize the probability of failure and the more you can magnify your success. And so many leaders avoid that difficult conversation.
1: Bravo! Yep, that's uh, so well said. I love it. What what else are we missing that you want to insert here? Again, that uh, we have the ear of the C suite as our kind of assumption. Yeah. And then let's let's try to kind of try to transition a bit into the action side. Like, what's one big powerful action that people can take as a result of what we've discussed today?
0: Yeah, you know, I've I've been having a lot of conversations with um, the the C suite, particularly the HR C suite. Um, as well as with new leaders, you know, who have who have been put into a role based on their past track record of, of success. And, you know, the the big gaping hole, the big missed opportunity that companies can jump on right away is this concept of, of leadership preparedness, right? I think most organizations um, do a good job or at least pay enough attention time-wise and dollar-wise to um, kind of amping up their efforts around trying to find the right candidate for the right role. But then that handoff they think is complete. And then they go back to their spreadsheet and go and plan for that six month dip. Here's the big Delta that you're missing out on, right? The big action that you can take is to make sure that you provide support to that leader for those six months, because I guarantee you if you do that in a structured way, in a more intentional way, you're going to shorten that dip, And you're going to get them on the path to dominance, or you're going to find out much sooner. You you use the example before of, you know, a large company putting somebody in for two years and they're just languishing and a big company can absorb that. If you pay more attention to this, you're also going to find out a lot sooner if that's truly the right person for the role. So to me, that's the biggest opportunity that organizations need to jump on is really assessing, do I have the right leader? or leadership team in place to get me from where we are to where we want to be as a company? And can I do that in a way that I can replicate right back to the NFL example? Can I do that in a way so we don't just win games, but we win the Super Bowl. And that's not even enough that we actually build a dynasty.
1: That's awesome. Boy, I really love that. It excites me. It makes me want to be one of those executives just so I could go apply what you just shared. So I, I think it's so powerful. So, Claire, how can people connect with you? What, what's the best way? I know you have amazing content on your website. Um, you have an assessment on your site, an organizational assessment. Like it, just what's available that people can go in and connect with either you or some of your content to get to know you better.
0: Yeah. So if, if you want to get to know me a little bit better and download some free content and start, you know, kind of acting on some of what we've talked about right away, go to Claire Uh, There is a resources page with a whole bunch of free content and resources. Um, but the more immediate thing is if any of what Spencer and I have been talking about in this, you know, 30 minutes or so resonates with you, I'd love to talk to you about it. So We're going to drop a link, I think, into the show notes, but look for the link that says discoverywithclaire.com. This is not a sales pitch to you. This is literally an open door for you to, you know, schedule 15 minutes. Let's have a conversation. I'd love to understand where you are. And, you know, maybe we can find one or two or even three things that you can do yourself tomorrow to move the needle and get out of that dip.
1: Okay. Well, Claire Chandler, you are amazing. I'm really, really grateful for the time we've been able to spend together. And just thanks for sharing your wisdom with us today.
0: Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the conversation.
1: What an amazing conversation. So grateful for Claire Chandler. I sincerely hope you enjoyed that and would love your thoughts and feedback. Uh, I know Claire would as well. So please let us know uh, what your takeaways were, what you plan to do as a result of what, what we discussed today. There was one thing that I was thinking about during our interview, I think in the, kind of in the big corporate world at least, the larger companies, uh, we've been in a place for a while now where there's sort of this underlying thread in the culture of corporate where being incredibly busy is like this badge of honor. For that reason, I really love what Claire talked about regarding silence, creating space, for thought and uh, ide- ideation and just space to step back a little bit and uh, take a look at things from a broader viewpoint. I think there is absolutely power in that. You heard a couple of, of uh, stories or, or kind of small micro case studies that uh, I think we both touched on just briefly that prove that out. So it's not just this nice idea. The data shows that it works when you create space to, to think about things in uh, And you don't just have that back-to-back-to-back-to-back 12-18-hour to 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 day constant grind. You're going to actually come up with solutions that are more efficient, more powerful, bigger impact than what you were able to do in the middle of the chaos. For example, that was 10 seconds of silence. You probably thought your device stopped working or froze or whatever your Bluetooth disconnected <laughs> to have 10 seconds of silence feels like forever. And we need at least 10 minutes a day or you know a few minutes a day uh, to, to again kind of zoom out, look at things more broadly, evaluate where we are, how is our current impact, how can we make it better? Uh, and even just time to be silent uh, without uh, without that active analysis or active, thinking. Uh, it, it's really good for us, just the way we're built, to have a little bit of quiet. So anyway, obviously that's one of the biggest things that stuck with me. That's why I'm reemphasizing it here at the end. But so many other valuable points and principles were conveyed by Claire. So grateful for her. I do hope you'll connect with her and her content. She's a, a brilliant woman and amazing influencer uh, in this space of organizational change and leadership And I'm just delighted to have had the chance to visit.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Exploring Leadership Podcast. To access free videos, leadership tools, case studies, tutorials, and more about how to engage your leaders at the next level, visit LumenLeader.com. We'll see you next time.